Hello and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who have ever called themselves a fangirl of Dr. Paul Offit. <laughs> I have <laughs> called myself that, actually. Yes. <laughs> On Nathan is a fangirl. Um, and this is the right episode it. too, right? My yes. name my name is Karen Ernst and I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonstra. I'm a general pediatrician here in Des Moines, Iowa, at Blank Children's Hospital. And today we get to talk at a future point to Dr. Paul Offit in the future. So yes, I'm very excited to hear what things he might say that I don't know about yet. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. What'd you say? I said no clue. I have no, no idea. No clue. We don't know. No. Um, let's go to Around the Web. Yeah, let's do that. What's <laughs> your Around the Web, Nathan? Uh, my Around the Web. All right. So it's actually going to tie into something that we'll reveal later that has to do with this topic about celebrities and science. But I was going to pull up just recently, um, Parents Magazine tweeted out an article that they had put together, like kind of a little listicle type thing. Uh, and it, uh, as far as I can tell, the, the article... I, I am pretty sure this article is a couple years old, but there's no date immediately on this online article. The article is called Where 13 Celebrity Parents Stand on Vaccinating Their Kids. Uh, with the line of, to vaccinate or not to vaccinate is a hot-button topic among parents. Find out what star moms have said about the decisions they made for their little ones. So, like I said, I think this has been out for... I, I don't think this the article itself is new. Somebody more savvy might be able to figure that out. But the tweet is new. And so a lot of people were rightly standing up, tweeting back and saying, Parents Magazine, this is very irresponsible. Um, uh, the, to to list, there's there's 13 of them here. Some of them are, are people that we know and love, like mm-hmm. Kristen Bell, Amanda Peet is on this list. It's about 8-4 in terms of 8 eight parent celebrities that are uh, pro-vaccine or at least have been involved in some project to promote vaccine in some part of the world. Uh, and whereas about four and some of our favorite people like Jenny McCarthy are on the list, mm-hmm. Alicia Silverstone, etc. Kristen uh, Bell. Kristen Bell we love. We love her so much. Yeah. In fact, if she's listening or if Dax Shepard is listening, you know, Dax, those few words that we had on Twitter, if you want to follow up on that on the podcast i'm not hard to find anyway that actually kind of leads into what i'm i want to talk about because here we are out of one side of our mouth saying ah nobody should listen to celebrities why are you doing this parents magazine on the other hand we're saying hey you know celebrity that wants to talk about vaccines and why you vaccinate please let's do that what do you what do you think about that karen if i can put you on the spot where where do you feel about this how do you feel about all this well, I just pulled up this uh, tweet, too, and the conversation's interesting. This is w- how I feel about celebrities in general. I think celebrities d- do have a very large platform. Mm-hmm. Whether or not we want them to have it, we've given it to them. They have a large platform. And I think that they should use that platform uh, for, for the benefit of others. I really do. And I think that if they are using it to hurt other people, they should be called out on it. And I think mm-hmm. if they're using it to help other people to say, hey, I'm a parent and I vaccinate and I, I'm happy I do, 
I, I think that's a good thing. You know, it's not that we shouldn't listen to celebrities, but certainly they they help sh- us share a platform for our own message. You know, when Kristen Bell talks mm-hmm. about vaccines, she t- she talks about a whole bunch of tough issues. She talks about um, psychiatric meds and and all sorts of stuff. It gives people a space to also be able to talk about that, and so I don't think it's so much listening to celebrities as it is, y- you know allowing celebrities to make space for the rest of us to say things that are important as well and so so that's kind of what I'm feeling about it none of us should take any medical advice from a celebrity but certainly if you know if they're saying something that that helps other people and and we want to be there with them then we should be there with them yeah, and I agree. And I think the real problem here, and what I tried to kind of be nuanced about when I tweeted about this, is the issue is, I think, the Parents Magazine and the article itself. So I think it's great that a celebrity will stand up for public health. And certainly those that are wrong on an issue or that are make, giving messages, like some of these celebrities that are against public health, I think that's bad, of course. But the real issue here is the framing of this issue in this article. To take an article about vaccinations, to be a parents magazine that has, that itself has a huge audience, specifically of parents, many of whom are in that prime point where they're trying to make decisions about immunizing. And then to put out an article that is just kind of, it's, it's almost the wor- worse than even the worst false balance that we talk about with news because now we're not even talking about some real expert and some quack or some real expert and some non-expert with an anecdote. We're talking about comparing a whole bunch of stories of people who are not experts and yeah. putting that out to the public as if that article itself and that kind of pro-con look at things has merit and it right. really doesn't. I think it's a very irresponsible article, although I certainly don't, uh, I'm not hard on any of the celebrities who are uh, speaking out for vaccinations for doing so. I think they should keep doing that, but it's worth taking a look at and you can look at the Twitter uh, conversation on that. You can go to my Twitter feed to see some of that. Um, and uh, yeah, check that out. I think it's important too, whenever we're, whenever we're looking at um, articles in the media concerning vaccines, um, that, you know, we're coming at it from, uh, they need to tell the truth, Mm -hmm. there needs to be a public good, but the the media is a tough landscape right now, and what they want to do is they want to break out, they want to... you know they want to be read they want sure. people to be talking about what they're what they're doing and I, and i don't mean that in like a craven like we'll do anything for ratings or for clicks mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. but they don't survive unless people are reading them yeah. and to be frank these stories get read i mean all the, i'm looking at all these people who are tweeting about this mm-hmm. and sharing it 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 gets talked about um and so if, if we want better stories in the media, we need to do a certain amount of promoting the stories that are good. You know, those stories that really dig into the science, the stories that highlight the, the kids who need to be protected um, with vaccines by, you know, by community immunity, uh, all of those things. And, and we also need to help the media find those stories. And so, uh, you know, the celebrity stories are are fun because people like arguing about celebrities but 
you know, Parents Magazine would probably love to talk to, for example, my, my friend Laura Bredesen, whose son was exposed to measles while he was undergoing leukemia because of people being afraid that measles cause autism. So th- there's a story that I think is a lot more important and interesting than um, whether we like Kristen Bell better than Jenny McCarthy. Um so you know that that's that's part of my thought too is some of it is we kind of get the media we deserve because the media gives us what we're paying attention to sure and and i th- I do think we need to own up to that a little bit um and i I do think we need to help the media find what we want to talk about by really sharing the heck out of good vaccine stories and engaging with them and and standing up for when they are telling the hard truths. So that's that's my my thoughts on that. Yeah, I agree. And then also, like I said, Dax Shepard, Kristen Bell, if you're listening out there, hit us up. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. We need, we need you. <laughs> we need to talk to you. The Good we Place have is room. like my favorite show <laughs> of all time. Right yeah, I haven't now. watched that yet, but <gasps> they both have a lot of good geek cred. I ju- we just watched. We're gonna, I'm going to diverge now, but uh, we just watched Zathura. Uh, oh, which stars Dax Shepard uh, with the kids. And that was really fantastic. If you like Jumanji and everybody remembers Jumanji, Zathura yeah. is way better than It Jumanji. is way better. Yeah. And it's a, it's a Underrated. Fun I don't think it did as well, but it's so good. It is very good. Um, also, uh, the, you have to watch The Good Place. Okay, so we're not going to talk okay. about TV. We're not a pop culture podcast. So. <laughs> I have... Um, uh, pop culture so vaccine you know hour is that what we're gonna <laughs> have a segment of <laughs> <laughs> i know that you know what february 2nd is i do it's groundhog it's groundhog day. day yeah but it's also a really fabulous day that we need to start celebrating every year because it's also oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. retraction That's day right Happy belated retraction day. Absolutely. It's the retractiversary. Retractiversary. February 2nd, 2010, The Lancet retracted Andrew Wakefield's fraudulent paper linking MMR to autism. Mm -hmm. I still, I look at that date and I'm like, it took them 12 years? Right. I mean, first of all, they published it, which is unbelievable because it it was a bad case study anyhow. It, it wasn't, it, even if it had all panned out, um, it, it wasn't a good study. Right. It was. But, but then it was really super duper fraudulent and they still <laughs> sat on it for 12 years. So Yeah. And I mean, some of that in there was when the, I mean, it was, it was retracted by what, 10 of the 12 authors or right. a certain number. So there was kind of that partial retraction going on, but in terms of it actually being retracted by the Lancet. Uh, yeah, that's surprisingly late. <laughs> it is. That's, um, it, it's interesting too, because I was listening to the radio and they were talking about um, something else in science. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, the, uh, the person they were interviewing said something that I thought was really smart. And that's that science doesn't work with just one study science is iterative is the word he used and i Mm. liked that word iterative because um even if this study hadn't been fraudulent and hadn't been awful it is not iterative it was not ever reproduced and that happens with a lot of science that doesn't threaten public health as much um but here we are 
eight years after retraction day, mm-hmm. and we still have people who insist that they saw it with their own eyes and that they know a person who knows a person and that, you know, all of these things about vaccines and autism that just are are not based on anything that is on solid ground. And moreover, that they continue to laud Wakefield as a hero, which is Mm -hmm. even more difficult for me to fathom for people who are allegedly so against corruption in healthcare to, you know, to follow one of the, you know, most recognized medical frauds to this day is just, it's, it's mind blowing. It is mind blowing. And, you know, people are making their careers with him too. Mm -hmm. Um, Del Bigtree, who made um, the, what I like to call fraudumentary, Mm -hmm. uh, vaxxed, um, is, still touring the country in fact he's coming to minnesota this week to meet with a group of legislators and uh you know that's his career um you know he was a producer of the doctors i guess but right. no one ever heard of him yeah um and now he's now he's making money off of selling vaccines are dangerous and horrible and be afraid of them yeah and somehow getting an audience with lawmakers and across the country so yeah. it's all really upsetting disappointing but do you want to know something that's not upsetting and disappointing yeah i would love to have a little pick me up right about now we get to talk to dr offit today oh, yay and put some really good information out into the world and he's going to answer some questions that people submitted online so he's going to make it all better great he's, it's going to be a balm on everything <laughs> so when we come back we'll be talking to dr paul offit And now we are joined by Dr. Paul Offit. I want to briefly introduce uh, Dr. Offit because, of course, we all know who he is. But I think that the most important thing everybody needs to know is that he is the father of fully vaccinated children. And he is a great advocate and a generous and wonderful person to know. So welcome, Dr. Offit. Thank you. You forgot to mention I'm a Philadelphia Eagles season ticket holder, but that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. Outstanding. We here in Minnesota are not talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we asked our wonderful fans to submit questions. We got a ton of questions, and there's no way we're getting to all of them. I'm, I'm sorry, wonderful fans. But I the one we got the most questions about the flu vaccine and the current flu season. So just generally speaking, what can you tell us about what's going on with flu? All right. So flu um, influenza virus um, on the surface of the virus is a critical protein called the hemagglutinin. And when you make uh, an antibody response to influenza by vaccination, that's the protein that you're trying to neutralize because that's the protein that's responsible for binding to cells. The problem with influenza is that every year that protein is able to mutate or change so much so from one year to the next that you need to vaccinate every year independent or said another way that natural infection or immunization one year doesn't protect against disease the following year. Which is why the CDC recommends that everybody over six months of age in the United States receive a flu vaccine every year which is burdensome for the patient. It's very difficult 
for the healthcare system, and I think it sends the message that it's not a very good vaccine. Um, so that's one problem. One problem is that the virus changes yearly. The second thing is that, that some the, the, the way that the FDA determines which strains to put in the vaccine every year, and they're going to determine it this year on March 1st, um, is they look at the strains that are circulating in South America. And those strains pretty much invariably then travel up into North America and cause disease. Um, the, the problem, however, sometimes on that trip up from South America to North America, the virus changes enough away from the vaccine strains that the vaccine is pretty much ineffective. And that's what happened in the 2014-2015 year when the efficacy or effectiveness of the vaccine was only about 13%. The third thing that, that makes a flu vaccine difficult, and I think most people don't realize this, uh, including, I think, physicians and healthcare people, is that, that the vaccine, when grown in eggs, can also mutate, that that hemagglutinin can also drift, if you will, while it's being manufactured in eggs. And I think that as we move along with flu vaccine manufacture, I suspect we're going to be moving away from eggs and moving toward growing the virus, uh, vaccine virus strains in mammalian cells or using recombinant DNA technologies as used currently for flu blocks. So, so the vaccine is is not great, but it is better than anything else we have. It last year, this year, it looks like with the predominant strain, the so-called H3N2 strain, that it looks like it's about 30% effective. And you know, people would say, you know, 30%, that's not very good. But the fact of the matter is, the efficacy of the vaccine, if you don't get it, is zero percent. This is a vaccine. This is a virus that can, you know, certainly kill children. I mean, it's already, um, you know, killed I think uh, more than 50 children so far this year in the United States. And that's actually not that unusual. I mean, we'll see years where there's between 75 and 150 children that die from influenza. So a 30% efficacy rate is certainly better than 0%. And it, it, is, it is the best tool that we have. Although I will say that we'll, we'll get there. I think we'll make better tools for influenza vaccine in the future. A lot of the headlines that are going around are saying 10%. And we've kind of talked about that on this uh, show. Can you talk a little bit about those headlines and how that differs from the 30% and why? Yeah, not, well, certainly it looks like that the, the um, efficacy in Australia against the predominant H3N2 strain was between 10 and 20 percent. And I think that's where that came from, probably. Mm -hmm. But the, the data here so far um, is that it's about 30 percent effective against the predominant strain. And it's actually better against the, the less dominant strains like the so-called B strains. I have one question about the flu vaccine that um, I think doesn't get talked about a lot. And that, and it's kind of hit home a little bit when I've started to see influenza deaths in children. And some of these kids, they didn't get their flu vaccine, not because they're necessarily refusing it, but because they were told that they couldn't get it yet, or they were too ill, or something like that. And so now it's January, they haven't gotten their flu vaccine yet. Can you talk, this would be a good refresher for me, can you talk a little bit about like what are, in terms of just being ill, like when can you get a vaccine and when should you not get a vaccine? When's it a relative contraindication? What should we think about when we've got a kiddo coming into the office, they've got a viral illness of some kind, they don't have their flu vaccine, and we've got to decide whether or not to give that child a vaccine. Right, so and this is true not just for the influenza vaccine, but for other vaccines. Um, if you have a... Um, 
serious infection, obviously, pneumonia, meningitis, you should not be vaccinated until you're better. If you have mild in, milder infections like an ear infection or you know, a, a, an intestinal viral infection, you can still be vaccinated. So low-grade fever and mild upper respiratory tract infections like colds or ear infections or stomach infections are not contraindications of vaccines. High fever is a contraindication of vaccines. Um, but, but for the most part, uh, the low-grade fevers you see with typical sort of outpatient infections are not a contraindication to vaccines. And, and you know, it's all invariably when we don't vaccinate in those mm -hmm. settings, it is, as you note, a lost opportunity. Yeah, I think that's really important for providers to keep in mind that every time that somebody can get a vaccine in the clinic, if you don't do it, like you're weighing that risk of they may not come back that season. Uh, and then you might end up with some of the situations that we've heard about in the news lately, which are tragic. Absolutely. Um, one of the questions that was submitted to us has to do with um, universal flu vaccines and when those would be available and if we have any idea if a universal flu vaccine would be more effective and uh, you know sort of what what's the, th the thought on that you know actually um, trained in a flu lab in the 1980s um, in the early 1980s when the person I was actually working on rotaviruses in a flu lab but the person who was the head of that lab and everybody else who was working in the lab were working on a universal flu vaccine so this is more than 30 years ago which tells you uh, how difficult it is to do that so the definition of a universal flu vaccine is that 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 you you give a vaccine that that where you don't have to worry about the fact that this virus is mutating from one year to the next or even during the same season in other words that you would be making a vaccine against a part of the virus that is universally conserved among all strains. That's hard because sort of the business end of the hemagglutinin, which is that influenza protein that binds to cells, is the part you really care about and that's the part that mutates. That said, and I think we should personally just sort of get away from the term universal flu vaccine because what is implied there is that you get a vaccine that's going to be good against all strains and that is going to last you not just through one season, but then by definition, because it's all strains, would last you for, for many years and arguably a lifetime. Um, I would just settle for, frankly, a better flu vaccine. You know, when you have efficacy rates that typically are between 40 and 60 percent, you know, 60 percent being our best years, that's not a great vaccine. And most of our vaccines are in the 90 percent, sometimes 95% range. So this, I would settle for a better flu vaccine. Now, to date, we've sort of done sort of the two strategies that you would figure we would do to make a better vaccine. One, have more viral protein in the vaccine. So instead of having 15 micrograms of hemagglutin and have 45, so we have that, the so-called high-dose vaccine, which is primarily for the greater than 65-year-old. And the second is to adjuvant the vaccine, meaning to add a chemical that uh, that enhances the immune response. And that also is now available, again, for those um, older adults who are over 65. It's a squalene adjuvanted vaccine. Um, I, I, th I think, and, and, that's, and the, both those vaccines, I think, are so, certainly somewhat better than the standard vaccine, but again, aren't, aren't amazing. So I, I do think, however, and, and I've been pretty much pessimistic about this uh, for, for the last 30 years that we would ever be able to do this just because I watched how hard it's been to do it. Um, there were two papers that recently came out, uh, one in Science and the other one in, in one of the Nature uh, 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 compatible journals. Um, that, that really did look promising. Um, one of them took sort of the, 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 the hemagglutin, not, not the business end, but the stem region, the more conserved region, made nanoparticles out of it that were stable and at 
least in animal models, looked very promising. The other was a very clever idea. It was done by Chinese uh, research, or rather researchers in China, who um, who took the virus, and it's really sort of complicated. But 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 the, the virus actually influenza virus is heinous for many ways. One because it mutates, but the other thing it does is it actually suppresses your ability to make interferon, which is a a part of your immune response that keeps the virus from reproducing itself. And what it did, it mutated the virus so that it no longer could do that. And then it took the other genes that that uh, that are in the in the virus. There's there are eight different genes in influenza virus, and they mutated those strains to make them hyper susceptible to the effects of interferon. So so now one, it couldn't uh, suppress interferon, and two, it it was unable to or, or it was hyper so-called hyper uh, interferon susceptible, and that's what these strains are called, the so-called HIS strains. And it, it induced phenomenally good B and T cell response. It's 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 like it's like a live attenuated virus, but but attenuated in a manner that vi vaccine viruses have never been attenuated before. So that we'll see how that again the, those studies were done in mice and in uh, in ferrets, which is the animal model for influenza. But we'll see how those do. I, I thought I thought actually those so-called HIS strains may well be vaccines of the future. So we'll see. That is fascinating. I'm just, I, you kind of just blew my mind because I have never heard of that before. And that is amazing. I, <laughs> I guess science is incredible, isn't it? Um, another question we had is again about um, the current flu vaccine and efficacy. Um, and then after this question, I think we'll turn away from flu. But uh, one person asked, um, is there any data to show that despite flu vaccine mismatch for any given year, those who have had flu vaccines for successive years are better protected than those who don't? Yes, I think you, you're, you're the... the um that although um, it's been difficult to make a universal flu vaccine, it's highly effective. The fact is that if you've been either naturally infected or uh, immunized with flu vaccines in the past, um, that that does provide you with, with some cross-reactive immunity, if you will. Um, not just antibodies, but also um, one, one part of the uh, your immune system called cytotoxic T cells. So these are cells, T cells that kill virus-infected cells. And that, that those, those uh, um, responses are broadly cross-reactive. So Bridget is John Udell, many people have done research on this to show that, that, that what you ask is exactly right. Yes, there is some value in being uh, naturally infected or immunized in your past. So we've also gotten a number of questions. Let's let's pivot over to pertussis. So I know we've talked about this last year. We can you tell us a little bit about what the weaknesses are of the pertussis vaccine that we have currently, and then what does it look like? Just like we're looking towards the horizon towards a better flu vaccine, what are we looking at in terms of ever getting a better pertussis vaccine? Right. So to put this in historical perspective, um, there the pertussis vaccine came about in the 1940s. It was made by taking this bacteria, so-called Bordetella pertussis, growing it up in specialized media, and then basically just um, inactivating not just the bacteria itself, but also the proteins, so-called toxins that are produced by the bacteria. So it's a, it was a it's really the only time in the United States we've ever used a whole bacterial vaccine, and it was highly effective. I mean, we went from 8,000 deaths from pertussis every year to frankly fewer than 25 because of that vaccine. 
Um, it did have, because it was a whole bacterial vaccine, it had a difficult safety profile. So, you know, fever, including high fever, uh, fevers that were associated with seizures, so-called hypotonic hyporesponsive syndrome, where the child became sort of floppy for, for a period of time after the vaccine, high-pitched, inconsolable crying. And so that all that, those safety issues, drove us to a more purified vaccine. I mean, using advances that we had in the 70s and 80s with, you know, protein purification and recombinant DNA technology, we were able to make a vaccine that instead of having basically the 3,000 proteins that were contained in the whole cell pertussis vaccine, meaning the, the original pertussis vaccine, it, this vaccine has not 3,000 proteins, but, but depending on the product, between three and five proteins. So it was much less reactogenic, much less likely to cause those side effects. But the problem, however, is that we traded efficacy for safety. So the, the original vaccine was definitely a better vaccine. It had a, a difficult safety profile, but it was a better vaccine. And it should be noted also that that vaccine did not cause any sort of permanent disabilities. It just caused sort of uh, reactions in the short term. So we did trade safety for efficacy. So now, you know, although still we have fewer than, you know, 20, 20 to 25 deaths a year, and they're all in the less, frankly, the less than two month old, uh, which is why it's important for, uh, for mothers when pregnant to get vaccinated. Um, we do have, you know, as reported, you know, between 40 and 45,000 cases of pertussis or whooping cough every year. And that I am sure is just the tip of the iceberg. So the question is, can we do better? Can we be do better than this current vaccine? I think the answer to that question scientifically is yes. However, I don't see any companies stepping forward to do this. And I'm actually on the pertussis working group for the uh, at the CDC. And, you know, we basically have stepped back. We're not doing anything now. And we would be were there new vaccines that were in the pipeline. And that, that's not happening. So the, the, I think the main reason is the main reason is that vaccines were not big money makers. So from a company standpoint, vaccines, which are given just once or a few times in your lifetime, are never, never approach the kinds of blockbuster products that they can have with, you know, lipid lowering agents or, or diabetes drugs or, um, you know, or psychiatric drugs and neurological drugs, et cetera. So they're, it's, and, and they're, they're you know, doing the uh, research and development on vaccines is very expensive. So you can see somewhat of a fraying of that, that infrastructure for making vaccines. That's number one. Number two, the path to licensure would be difficult. You would have to show that, that this new vaccine is significantly better than existing vaccines. Those are very big, very expensive studies, and I just don't see companies stepping forward to do that. In terms of, we talked about that older vaccine, um, the whole cell vaccine that was more effective. Is it, has it been discussed or would it ever be considered to actually recommend that vaccine again? Or is that too much of a PR problem given the history, given the reactogenicity of that vaccine to, to use that again? No, that's a good question. And it has been brought up. And I, I think the answer to your question is B, too much of a PR problem. I think, you know, we, we um, not just, uh, I think, uh, certain members of the public, but I think that physicians have a notion that that vaccine was unsafe. And even though it didn't cause any permanent disabilities, I think there was a notion that it might have. And so I, I think it's a PR problem. Maybe we could call it, you know, pertussis classic. You know, that worked for Coke. I'm not sure that would work here. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. The uh the other follow up to that is for adults. Um remind us of the recommendation for pertussis immunization for adults. Uh, it's not every it's not the same as getting a tetanus booster and tell us why that is. Why we don't get a pertussis booster every every so often. No, that's a great question. I mean, so the so-called Tdap vaccine, meaning big T, little d, little a, little p vaccine is recommended as a single dose. For, for adolescents, and then had you not received that vaccine, which is true of many adults, then it's also recommended
recommended as a single dose. But as you point out, if, if the pertussis component um, induces an immune response that to some extent is short-lived, wouldn't it make sense to, when you're getting your TD vaccine every year, to get a TD I'm sorry, every uh, every 10 years, to get a Tdap vaccine every five or 10 years? And the answer to that question is, do I think that the country would benefit from that? Do I think there would be less pertussis or whooping cough with that? I do think there would be. But I just, uh, the CDC has been reluctant to do that. I think because, you know, the current acellular pertussis vaccine has limitations and they're, they're uh, hesitant to make that kind of recommendation. But I think you're right. I think it would be a value. When people ask me that question, you know, can I, can I, you know, while I'm getting my TD, wouldn't it make sense to get a Tdap booster? Yes, it would. And we do, we do recommend Tdap in some situations to be given more than once. So for example, in pregnancy, even though technically it's licensed just as a single dose vaccine, um, we do recommend that vaccine for every pregnancy. And the reason is, is that all the deaths in the United States from pertussis, and there's 20 to 25 a year, are in the less than two month old. That is not someone, an, an age group that's going to be protected by an active vaccination program. So instead we choose a passive vaccination program. Immunize the mother, the mother makes an antibody response, those antibodies are then transferred passively to the babies that will then protect them in the first few months of life while they're developing an active immune response when they get pertussis vaccine at two, four, and six months of age. So as long as we're on um, vaccines that we wish were better, we also got a number of questions about mumps. And uh, the first question is really, is anybody working on on a more effective mumps vaccine? Well, well, first of all, let's put it in perspective. I mean, the the um, mumps before there was a mumps vaccine. The first mumps vaccine was in uh, in the in 1967. So so before that, before 1967, you would see 200,000 cases of mumps every year, and it was one of the most common, if not the most common, cause of acquired deafness, um, because the mumps virus can infect the lining of the the brain and spinal cord, causing uh, meningitis. This because it's a viral meningitis, it's called aseptic meningitis, but it's one of the most common causes of aseptic meningitis. Once that vaccine came into effect, we went from 200,000 cases a year to, at at good years, you know, fewer than 200 cases, so a 99.9% decrease. The last few years, however, you're starting to see an increase in in mumps cases a little bit. So last year, it was was around 6,000 cases. Um, That's still dramatically less than what it was. But, but, But that said, when you see when you see mumps outbreaks, you see it more than ten years after the last dose. So so now it's a two dose vaccine, you know, given uh, given uh, twelve to fifteen months of age, and again at four to six years of age. So now you're starting to see it in sort of late adolescence, or early young adulthood, which is to say high schools or college campuses, and that's where you see the outbreaks. And the most recent outbreak, and it was reported in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, at a college campus, showed that um, the people who had gotten a mumps vaccine within the previous ten years were in, were protected. So I think what we're building to now is do we want to make a third dose mumps recommendation? So you give it, you know, at uh, 12 to 15 months of age, 4 to 6 years of age, and then again at 16 to 18 years of age, because that'll buy you another 10 years. And because that's where you're seeing the outbreaks is among these young adults who are gathering together in, you know, college campuses or barracks, etc. So, um, that I think is where the where the the focus is going to be. Do you recommend a third mumps vaccine? I don't see any particular effort in looking to make a better mumps vaccine. I know that the ACIP recently had considered that question, and um, that there's some level of of doctors' discretion now in giving the uh, a third dose, at least in terms of their last recommendations. How should doctors make that determination? 
Well, so you could look at this one of two ways. You could say um, since vaccines are a preventive and since we know the people who are more than 10 years after the third dose are at risk and we know that last year there were thousands of cases of mumps in the United States, is it reasonable to give a third dose mumps vaccine to the 16 to 18 year old? I think it is. Because the other way in which you could do this is to say, okay, I'm only going to give that third dose should my child uh, or young adult be in, in a situation which puts them at greater risk, i.e. a college campus or other setting in which um, you know, there's a currently a mumps outbreak. But when you do that, you're grandfathering in already a certain number of cases. And since we're in the prevention business, wouldn't it make more sense just to have a third dose recommendation for the older adolescent, which I think makes the most sense. And, and we'll see how this plays out. But were I a, a physician in private practice, I mean, I'm an academic physician who works in an infectious disease division at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, so I'm not in private practice but my wife is, so I watch what she goes through. I think I would give a third dose into the 16 to 18 year old of, of mumps containing vaccine. That, that's good to know because that's coming up soon for me. So <laughs> <laughs> take that kiddo in. Um, I, I want to turn to a couple of very um, sort of in the weeds specific questions that people have because I think they're really interesting and I have to tell you just as a side note when I asked people to submit questions I was really certain that we were going to get you know the anti-vaccine brigade coming out and being like you know ask Dr. Offit why he hates kids or something and we got <laughs> we got none of those we got zero <laughs> questions like that we got these really thoughtful <laughs> thoughtful smart incredible questions and it really it boosted my faith in humanity. So um, I, I really like this question because I hear it a lot and I think it'd be something really interesting to discuss. Um, this person asks, I've had some anti-vaccine friends argue that injecting a vaccine is somehow troubling compared to ingesting a vaccine. In the most simple language possible, what are the differences between injecting and ingesting? All right, so, so your body um, is um, primed to recognize foreign invaders no matter what the site of entry. So, so if the foreign invader enters your skin, you know, you have lymph nodes that are, are uh, strategically uh, uh, placed throughout your body. The same thing's true of the intestine. Um, the intestine is a rich source of T and B cells, and, and which is to say uh, immune cells, that allow the body to respond to any sort of foreign uh, proteins or, for, or, or foreign invaders that you're, you're seeing. So the, the gut is constantly sampling um, anything that's foreign. Uh, and, and it does that, the, the, there's uh, specialized cells in your intestine called M cells or microvilla cells. It's very easy to pass through those cells, very easy, and then enter into um, an area of the intestine called Peyer's patches, which is the major inductive site of the immune system. So you're constantly sampling foreign um, uh, viruses, bacteria, in this area of your intestine called Peyer's patches. I think people think wrongly that when you're swallowing something, that your body has a chance to reject it, which is to say to not see it as distinct from if, it, if it's injected, because if injected by definition, you're forcing the body to see this foreign agent. That's really not true. You're constantly seeing uh, f sampling anything that's foreign that's entering into your, your intestine. Now, there are some, some differences, obviously, the, 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 but not with regard to, to viruses and, and bacteria. In those cases, you're always going to be sampling viruses. In fact, you really could give all vaccines by mouth. You could, because Again, the richest source of immune cells in your body is, is not your spleen, it's not your thymus, it's your intestine. 
That's where you have most of your T and B cells. The problem with giving all vaccines by mouth is getting through the, the, the dragon at the, the head of the cave, which is your stomach, because your stomach makes acids, it makes proteases, which is to say enzymes that break down proteins. So you have to get through the stomach. Could you make a, could you put all vaccines in enteric coated preparations that then bypass the stomach and then release those viruses or bacterial proteins into the small intestine and have just as good of a, a, an effective immune response as if you gave it uh, as a shot? Yes, you could. There's, I think, you know, it would, it would, uh, there's very little interest in doing that because, you know, basically you're asking companies to compete with themselves. I mean, if you're, if you're, if only one company really makes the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, why should they compete against themselves? But could you give the MMR vaccine by mouth? Of course you could. So, uh, so I think, I think that's, that's sort of the way that I, I see that. It is a little different with some of the vaccine ingredients. So for example, aluminum, which is used, or aluminum salts, which are used as adjuvants in vaccines, you're going to, you're going to sort of bring aluminum into your body about 1% of what you ingest will be taken up into your lymphatics and then into your bloodstream. That's not true when you inject it. When you inject it, obviously, it's 100%. So, so there, there are differences. But regarding sampling of viral and bacterial proteins or bacterial polysaccharides, it's really the same or very similar. Yeah, that's interesting, too. And I'm glad you brought up aluminum because one of the things I've heard a lot from the anti-vaccine side is that uh, injecting is somehow more dangerous than ingestion. Uh, is is there anything to that or what 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 is I mean I understand why people think that because we eat food all the time but we don't often inject things into our body but why is it just as safe to inject as it would be to ingest or safer well so the key thing is how much in, if we use aluminum example how much aluminum is in your bloodstream because aluminum at high doses um, and this really is in people who have kidneys that don't work or on sort of chronic dialysis, it's really not, most healthy people are not going to have a problem with, with even, with a lot of aluminum. You think about the amount of aluminum that's in like an, an, an acid tablet. I mean, it's like 350 milligrams. It's huge quantities, much huger than you would ever get from, from a vaccine. But, but so people, can aluminum cause harm in, in patients who are, who have kidneys that basically don't work? Um, yes, aluminum can cause high levels of aluminum can cause anemia. It can cause thinning of bones. Um, it can cause some brain dysfunction. So that's all true and that but it's really only in that setting or in the severely premature infant that you really see that um, so really the only thing that matters is the amount of aluminum in your bloodstream it can get there in one of two ways it can get there because you ingest it or it can get there because you inject it now if you ingest it remember only about one percent gets across and into the bloodstream but you ingest logarithmically more greater quantities of aluminum assuming you live on this planet every day than you're ever going to get from vaccines because aluminum is the most abundant light metal on the surface of the earth. So assuming that you drink water or anything made from water on this earth, you're going to be exposed to aluminum. I mean, aluminum is used in leavening agents and, and sort of baking agents. It's very it's very common to be exposed to a lot of aluminum. So even though it's only 1% absorbed, you're exposed to so much greater levels when you when you eat it that you're you're still absorbing far more than if you get it uh, injected. So it's really the, the only thing that matters is the quantity in your bloodstream. So the root per se doesn't really matter. I have a question. I'm going to do best just by reading it because uh, it's it's got many parts. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Okay. It says, I have a question that I'm not sure how to formulate. It has to do with repeated infections with diseases that are now vaccine preventable. Some people for 
some people have, for example, chickenpox two or even three times. Likewise, mumps. My questions are, what's the technical term for such repeated infections? Do we have any indication how common such in repeated infections were in the pre-vaccine era? And what do such events tell us about the immune system? Well, I, for the most part, you get chickenpox once. Mm -hmm. I mean, you may be varicella. You may be exposed to that virus again, and and when you're exposed, you may have a boost to your immune system, but you're 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 not going to develop symptoms for the most part. You you are protected for the rest of your life. I am of an age, I'm a man of a certain age, where I was you know I was I was a child of the '50s, so I had chicken pops, I had chicken pox, I had measles, I had mumps, I had rubella, I had all those infections. Um, you know, I I for the most part am protected for the rest of my life. Um, I may be exposed to chicken pox because there's still about 40,000 cases a year of chicken pox in the United States, but I'm not going to get sick from chicken pox again. But I will get an immune boosting uh, as, as long as they're circulating strains. And that was always, if we use chicken pox as an example, always what worried people about shingles. That, that, that the reason that shingles comes up later um, is, is it, well, shingles is a reactivation of a chicken pox infection. The fear was that by creating a chicken pox vaccine and decreasing the amount of circulating chicken pox virus, that you would then not be getting these constant sort of subclinical boosts to your immune system that would then prevent you from getting shingles. Um, and so people worried that as we were basically replacing circulating chickenpox virus with chickenpox vaccine, that we would see more shingles. That hasn't happened, interestingly. I think it's also worth, I, I feel like people, I, I talk to people who, who believe that they or they know somebody who got chickenpox multiple times, and then I drill down on that and I find out, well, they had this thing and maybe a physician or somebody swore it was chicken pox, but it was never, it's not like they swabbed one of the vesicles and actually detected the virus. So you get kind of these stories like that. And certainly there might be rare cases in which somebody has an immune problem where they've gotten an infection more than once. Um, but I think a lot of these stories, when you when you drill down, they're not necessarily that this, this person is getting full-blown chicken pox or something else over and over again. Um, and so I think it's always worth being wary of, of those kind of stories that you might hear. I completely agree with that. We have a couple questions about engaging friends. Um, again, uh, one person asks, if I had to recommend one single book or website to parents on the fence about vaccines, what would you recommend? Well, I mean, I'm uh, my bias obviously is our, our side. I mean, we, so we have the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, which is you know geared for you know parents who have questions about vaccine ingredients or vaccine safety, and that's that's all uh, on our website. But there are other also great websites. I mean, the Voices for Vaccines has a great website. I think American Academy of Pediatrics, Every Child by Two, the Immunization Action Coalition, um, Parents of Kids with Infectious Diseases, so-called PKids, uh, the CDC, Voices obviously, for Voices for vaccines didn't i say that i didn't say voices for vaccines <laughs> voices for vaccines um you know all have great websites so there's there's a lot um a lot of there's a lot of good information out there but i think you know for people who are interested you know, who you know who google the term vaccines you know a lot of websites are going to come up that that give misinformation it's very difficult i think for um someone who's trying to get information to, to separate the good information from the bad information it really is hard i i I feel a, a lot of sympathy for people who are trying to navigate through this because invariably they go on the, the internet and invariably they're going to be exposed to information that's just plain wrong. I guess one of the one of the, the simple tricks I would use is uh, don't go to uh, sites that are selling products, products that cure your autism, for example. 
Uh, absolutely. Although, do go to Voices for Vaccines Cafe Press store and buy yourself a T-shirt. Yeah, right. Except for that. Yeah, except for that. <laughs> um, and then another question about engaging friends. Um, someone asks, is it worthwhile trying to change minds or should we advocate for evidence-based medicine and public policy? If we should change minds, how should we proceed? Right. So I think it, it's, I can tell within 30 seconds of somebody calling me and I get these calls every day, whether they really want to hear what I have to say. So I think some people, most people, I would say 85% of the calls that I get are from people who really have smelled the smoke. They want to know whether there's any fire there. They, they believe that it's possible that I might know more about this subject than they do and that they're willing to listen and be convinced by the evidence. I, I, I do think that's actually most people, but, but I can tell within 30 seconds whether that's true whether the person who's asking me the question simply is telling me what they know that I don't and they just wanted to make sure that I understood that I knew less on this particular subject and there's no way I was going to convince them. And, and that's often how I begin the conversation. I'll say, you know, is there, in talking to me, do you think that it's it, it, it remotely possible that I could change your mind? And sometimes, you know, the answer is no, in which case, you know, it's, it's silly for us to continue because we're ba wasting both of our time. But um, I, I do think most people are... Uh, convincible with evidence. I mean, it, it is, these are scientific questions. I mean, does the MMR cause autism? Uh, that's a scientific question that can be answered in a scientific venue, has been answered in a scientific venue. These aren't belief systems. I, I think the, the, the good thing about science, for me anyway, is that it's an evidence-based system. There are certain truths that emerge over time. And, and, you know, now if you use the MMR autism example, we have 17 studies that have been done in hundreds of thousands of children on three continents in seven different countries uh, showing that you're at no greater risk of getting autism if you got that vaccine or if you didn't. Um, but it's easy to scare people. It's just much harder to unscare them. All right. I have a, I'm going to read this one verbatim as well. It's, it, it goes deep into uh, diphtheria uh, vaccine. So it says, uh, there was recently a local, this is in Edmonton, Alberta, a uh, case of cutaneous diphtheria in a vaccinated child with no disclosure to the public, whether toxigenic or non-toxigenic. Since the vaccine present, protects against the toxin, it wouldn't prevent the non-toxigenic, but could the vaccine have prevented the serious respiratory disease, what we typically think of as diphtheria, if it was toxigenic or is cutaneous diphtheria more the result of how someone is infected and then there's another paragraph so i'll just stop there for now actually that's a really good question i mean and it always was interesting to me that here you have um diphtheria is a bacteria uh carinibacterium diphtheria it, it's um it has many proteins, uh, one of which is produced by the bacteria and, and, and causes disease. It's a toxin. It's a poison. Um, the, the way the vaccine is made is you take that toxin, purify it, and inactivate it with a chemical, and that becomes your vaccine, which is to say the antibodies, the immune response that you make is just against that one protein, which is not really part of the virus, or I'm sorry, part of the bacteria. It's excreted 
away from the bacteria. So why is it that if you're making antibodies to just this one protein that's not even part of the bacteria, that it would then prevent the bacteria from, you know, from reproducing itself, making toxin and causing disease? And I think the answer to that question, at least for the, the diphtheria we care about, which is in obviously rarely cutaneous diphtheria, it's more the diphtheria that causes the so-called bull neck, you know, the sort of the gray-white membrane that, that, uh, that occludes the back of the throat that looks like a very severe uh, throat infection or pharyngitis. I mean, wh why does that work? And the answer to that question is the toxin is actually an important part of virulence factor for the bacteria, which is to say the bacteria, in order to gain a foothold in the, in the, in the host, in the person, needs to make that toxin. And if you prevent it from making it or neutralize its ability to make it, then it has a much lesser capacity to gain a foothold. Because not only have we eliminated sort of the, the disease, Carinibacterium diphtheria from, or the disease diphtheria from this country, we've essentially eliminated the bacteria from this country, which tells you that, that, that the production of toxin is a critical um, a virulence factor for the, for the bacteria itself. And I think that really answers a lot of the questions in the, in the second part of that uh, question as well. That's a very sophisticated question. That's good. Well, we have very sophisticated listeners. They were such smart questions. I was sort of bl blown away by that. So um, this is a smart podcast, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have time for one more question. And so I'm going to end on this one because I really like this question. How can we best support the development of the next generation of vaccine experts, researchers, and advocates? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, mean, I think that... Um, I mean, as someone who did research in the area of vaccines for, you know, for more than 25 years, the, the, my funding came from the National Institutes of Health, solely from the National Institutes of Health. And, and so who paid me? I mean, it was the public that paid me. It was the taxpayer that paid me. That's they, their taxes went to fund the National Institutes of Health, which then gave out grants. So the taxpayer was my boss. Um, I think the degree to which, and I think science is at some level under siege. You, you see people, um, not, it's not just a matter of scientific literacy, which I think is always true, but I think you're starting to see something emerge which, which is not something we'd experienced before, which is science denialism, that you simply declare your own truth you know, vaccines cause autism. The, the climate change is a hoax perpetuated by the, the Chinese. I mean, you just, you know, hear people declare their own truths, even in the face of facts that are obviously uh, dispute that. So, so what to do about that? I mean, I am encouraged by events like the March for Science, um, which occurred, you know, last April and, and involved, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people across the globe. I think, I think most people who frankly I think are centrists, just see the importance of science, realize that, you know, that, that science is under siege. So, but I think things like that, I think, you know, that, that letting your, your representative know that you think science is important, that science funding is important, that the National Institutes of Health, the CDC, which all receive money obviously from, from the federal government, that they be supported to do the kind of work that allows us to, to respond to things. You know, it's, it's, you know, when there's an Ebola outbreak in, in, uh, in West Africa, or when there's, you know, there's a, a fear of Zika virus, Virus, you know, coming up to the, you know, to, up into North America, you know, you can't just snap your fingers and have a vaccine be readily available because of that, having a vaccine means you have to have an intimate understanding of that particular 
a virus or bacteria, you know, that, that allows you to understand how to make a vaccine. That's not easy to do. I, you know, I was I was fortunate enough to work with a team here at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that, that created the, the uh, bovine human reassortant rotavirus vaccine, Rotatac. I mean, that was a 26-year effort. But at the heart of that effort was trying to understand key aspects of the virus. That's where you start. And then you build then to ultimately making a vaccine. These are long processes, and they can easily be disrupted if you simply decide not to, 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 to do that. I mean, Czechoslovakia, for example, was the heart of physics in the 1950s. I mean, that's where all the great physicists came from. And then the government decided not to fund it. And then they, did, they didn't come from there anymore. I think that could just as easily happen here as we are in the midst of sort of this science denialism mode. I mean, the fact of the matter is climate change is a fact. You can, you can stand up and deny it as the president of the United States has or as the department of uh, the head of the EPA or the head of energy has. But the fact of the matter is it exists. And if you deny it, you know, you, you can deny it and close your eyes all you want, but it exists and you have to do something about it. And I think, you know, we're at risk when you watch uh, this kind of level of denialism. We do have to stand up. And I think people are standing up. I, I do. But I think it's it's a, it's a more of a political process than I'd ever imagined. And you need to, to work through your congressmen and, and representatives to make sure that they have your values and that you only elect those who have your values. Well, I think that's a great call to action for today, Karen. Yeah, that is a good call to action. But I always like to end any conversation I have with Dr. Offit with this question, and that's, I hear you're working on a new book. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Um, yeah, I have a book coming out in June um, that's called Bad Advice, and the subtitle is, uh, or why celebrities, politicians, and activists aren't your best source of health information. Um, but it's in many ways actually it's a lot about it's a, it's a lot about your last question, which is sort of how can one best communicate science and uh, health to the public, you know, or die trying. I think that's pretty much what this is about. Uh, it's it's just sort of how how scientists interact with the media and and all the the sort of difficulties that are associated with that. It's with trying to get a part a, 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 across a, a good, vivid, compelling message. Excellent. That sounds exciting. I'm always thr thrilled to read your books. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I learned so much. In fact, I'm going to have to listen to this podcast like three or four more times to absorb <laughs> it all. Uh, it was great having you. Well, thank you, Karen. And thank you, Nathan. It's my Thanks pleasure. for my coming. Pleasure. So my name is Karen Ernst, and I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find Voices for Vaccines at voicesforvaccines.org. Also, please consider joining our um, discussion forum on Facebook. You can just Google or search on Facebook for Voices for Vaccines discussion forum. And I'm Nathan Boonstra. You can look for me on Twitter at PedsGeekMD. You can find me on Facebook, or you can go to my blog at PedsGeekMD.com. All right. Thank you so much.